Hello, and welcome to the eighth podcast of InfoSec Sync, where we keep you in sync with the ever-changing world of information security. I'm your host, Matt Morris. And I'm your host, Nick Thomas. And give us 60 minutes, and we will keep you on top of the latest security news and help you gain CPEs while tuning in. InfoSec Sync is brought to you by VicTech. At VicTech, they pride themselves on teamwork, customer satisfaction, and providing customers with elite engineering and technology solutions. They aim to become an ever more dominant force in every area, product, or service they represent. Visit them on the web at VicTech.net. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H dot net. InfoSec Sync is also brought to you by AllPoints. AllPoints provides a range of technology and mission-critical services within its core competencies that span systems engineering, information technology, cybersecurity, software development, as well as hardware and software integrated solutions. AllPoints, integrating personnel, technology, and services to exceed customer expectations. InfoSexing is also brought to you by the Van Dyke Technology Group. At Van Dyke, their work is focused on the performance and security of information systems of national impact. Optimize performance, maximize security. Experience the Van Dyke difference and visit them on the web at vdtg.com. And now, for Stories of the Week, ending Friday, October 31st, 2014. Hey guys, uh, it's been a while since we've recorded. Sorry to all of our listeners. Um, We wanted to put out an episode. We actually just... uh, this is the first day of Cyber Maryland. We'll be there tomorrow as well. So it's, you know, been pretty crazy. Went to B-Sides DC. Uh, shout out to the B-Sides crew. Um, they were very welcoming. It was a very great event. We had a um, an interview with Jack Daniel. We talked with Mark, Mark Boltz, uh, a few other individuals there. We got to see uh, the Pony Express guys. A lot of cool stuff out there. Um, and then... We segued into another cool place, um, Orlando. So we went to Issa International, which was pretty cool as well. Um, you know, it was cool seeing all the CISOs in one room. We were able to kind of ask the critical questions um, about, you know, hey, what are you thinking? Where do you think the... Uh, <laughs> look who it is. Hey, Vic just walked in, everybody. What's going on, guys? Hey, we just started, Vic. Oh, okay. So, uh, I didn't bring any food. So, we were telling all the listeners how busy we've been over this past uh, week and a half um, with B-Sides DC. Yes. All the interviews you guys did there that we'll be putting up on our uh, YouTube channel. Um, also, um, it's the International in Orlando. Remember how fun that was? A lot of fun. It was actually at, what, Disney World? Yep, Disney World. So, that was pretty cool. Um, I'd like to give a shout out to Stevie DeMann. Yeah, Steve, Stevie thanks for the... Stevie the man. What's up, man? It was fun going out there. What do you think, Vic? Yeah, Steve's a good friend of mine. He uh, took care of us while we were down there. So um, thanks, Steve. Appreciate it's a, it. It's always good uh, meeting new people. Steve, you're always welcome around these parts. And it was just good overall kind of keeping the pulse on information security. We got some um, good interviews, and uh, we'll be bringing that to you guys through our... Uh, YouTube channel. And now so, we're in the middle of uh, Cyber Maryland. 
Yeah, so what's the overall gist? How have you been feeling about it? I've been feeling really good. There's a lot of technology in um, Maryland, and it's all these companies coming together to share um, what they do, who they are, um, what they can bring to the community at large, and also a lot of startups too, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, I think uh, Maryland is truly the land of opportunity. I mean, it was remarked today that we kind of want to be the epicenter epicenter of cyber, whether that be cybersecurity, cyber innovation. Um, what's good is, you know, I want to shout out UMBC. Today, we actually got to uh, talk with the president of UMBC, and, you know, it was very refreshing um, hearing, you know, some of the young folks that he brought with them and, you know, before they go into the workforce, what needs to happen. Um, I personally like transitioning from what you can get to what you can give. Uh, I like pouring into other people and, and kind of uh, making them aware of, of, you know, from a cybersecurity standpoint, what's going on. Go UMBC. Go Retrievers. That's my school. Go Pete Karenji and Anthony Adams, the soccer team coach. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's uh, good stuff out there. Another thing is we got to talk with uh, Admiral Rogers. Um, at ISSA International, and that was pretty good. Um, some of the things I took away from that talk were, were basically, um, you know, private and public sector, and we need to have some translucency in the sense of with breaches, um, the different information, the different things that are occurring, um, we need to ensure that we have the pertinent information to prevent it from occurring in the future. So, for example, if you're a company and you have point-of-sale systems and you see a certain strain of malware, like Black POS or Direza or um, any of those different strains that we've seen in the past, and you have information about it, we need a centralized place for people to put that information, that pertinent information, so it can be, um, you know, detected in other environments and, you know, prevented from happening again and, and repeating itself. So that was good. Um, another thing he also talked about and remarked on was um, the Internet of Things, IoT. So with bring your own device, um, it's really worrying about other people's devices. Um, essentially, no matter how many systems are connected to the internet, no matter how many IPs there are out there, how many physical devices are connected, um, we have one thing that we need to worry about, and that's the security of all of those things. So it's hard correlating security um, amongst different product lines, different devices. So we have to watch out for that. Peter Bloom also gave a, gave a talk today. Uh, shout out to Peter. Yeah, that was an excellent talk. That was an excellent talk. Um, and uh, basically, you know, one thing I took away from that talk was when the map makers, right? So when they originally were creating maps, um, it was for different kingdoms, right? So you would have an individual that would go on a ship, find the boundaries, and then make a map. And right? then that map belonged to the ship or the ship owner. To the ship owner. And it was close hold. And it was close hold information. What they started realizing was people started dying, right? They, they were very unsure of what the terrain looked like. They didn't know how to prepare for trips and things like that. I mean, come on now. The only way you could get around was on boat. So they You got to be scared about the pirates, too. You, you got to be scared about, scared about the pirates as well. So, you know, one thing that came true was we had to have an information sharing. We had to say, all right. This is what the map, this is what I think the world looks like. What do you think the world looks like? Comparing and contrasting and then taking that information in for the good of, you know, the, the entire humanity. <laughs> yeah. The entire world. So you got to protect the booty. That's right. Protect the booty. Arr. So, you know, we definitely have to watch out for that. 
and uh, like Vic said, protect the booty. So essentially um, how that relates to cybersecurity and, and cyber in general is the pertinent information needs to be shared amongst multiple system owners, right? Multiple key stakeholders with information systems. So that's definitely key. And sometimes that's hard, you know, depending on who owns the systems and and what what the systems are doing. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing I took away from Cyber Maryland today is I love my state, to be honest with you. I mean, it's great going down into Baltimore, seeing the Ravens out there. Shout out to the Ravens. Let's, maybe we can bring it home this season. We'll see what happens. But, you know, it's good going out there and just getting a huge sense of ownership with Maryland. You know, I've been a Maryland resident for a number of years, and you never know. Um, I've seen Cyber Maryland. I've seen some of the stuff that's been put out. This is truly where everything came together in this one event. You saw it transcended federal, commercial, and then academia. You saw everybody out there, and, and it was a huge support. There were over, I think, 1,500 to 2,000 people there today. That's pretty big. We filled up the whole wow. third, fourth and third floor of the of the convention center. That's huge. The auto show does that, right? So instead of showing Camrys, we were showing exploits. <laughs> <laughs> and there wasn't any models, right? <laughs> no, there wasn't any models. So... Um, it was good going out there. So shout out to what's going on in the industry right now. I think we're definitely going in the right, uh, we're, we're going down the right path. And even going down vendor row, I mean, typically when you look at some of this stuff, I started asking critical questions. We sat in a cloud talk as well. Yeah, that was um, what does the future hold for the cloud? And there were three main guys there. Uh, Mike Binko with uh, CloudTrack. He's the CEO of CloudTrack. Um, Ron Gula Ron from Gula Tenable from Network Tenable. Security. He's a CEO shout Tenable. out to that. And then we also had Guy Daly um, from, from Cisco. Cisco. yeah. And it was good, you know, kind of sit, sitting down with them and, and talking with them. I, I raised some questions as far as, you know, I understand it's with cloud, especially people don't understand that there's, it's twofold, the vernacular and then the concepts. So the vernacular cloud and cyber and all of the associated pieces, that is ever changing. No matter what, the concepts still remain the same. You have something somewhere, whether you own that, let's think of it as a landlord-tenant model, whether you own that piece of land or not, you have something somewhere else. So how do you secure that? So we were talking about some different cloud methodologies. Also, that brings up, I presented at, a, at ISC Squared Baltimore chapter um, on cloud methodologies and securing cloud environments. Shout out to um, the ISC Squared Baltimore chapter. That was, that was real fun. What did you think about that? Vic Vic actually came out with me on yeah, that. Yeah, that one. was a good event. That was good uh you had a good little talk. Going yeah, on over I there. think somebody regarded me as a cloud security evangelist. So that's my new title, in case you didn't know. So you heard it here first. <laughs> um so you know, it's it, we've been pounding pounding the ground, getting stuff done. Um and that's that's how we do it here. So you know, we're going to kind of change it up. I think we got away from our original style. Our original style was to kind of talk about the stories. Um, and then give a little bit of insight from our perspective with what we've seen in industry, how you can change things. We kind of transitioned into reading the news, right? Because we want to deliver news to you guys, the listeners, right. guys and gals. So what we're going to do is transition back to talking about the yeah, stuff. Yeah, because a lot of the fans have been saying, hey, we missed the old way you guys were doing things. So we, like it when we listen. The cuff. So DJ Buffer Overflow and uh, what is it? What was the other one? Oral B. <laughs> well, listen to what you guys have to say, and, and we're going to change our style up a little bit. So what, what was the other one? It was no DJ. Op. Yeah. DJ Buffer Overflow and No Op in the house. <laughs> so you could strike a boundary condition 
you know, at a town near you, you never know. So, or you slice and ram near you, you don't even know. So, um, we're going to get back to that. So let's get into the stories of the week. Um, let's see. The first thing I want to talk about replay attacks. So replay attacks, who played video games before in this room? Everybody. Everybody, right? We grew up on Atari and Nintendo. Absolutely. So you remember when they came out with the controllers, right, that you could program stuff into and you could program the cheat codes? I remember Gran Turismo, when the first Gran Turismo came out on the PlayStation back in the day, right? Well, not really back in the day. Some of our listeners maybe weren't even born then, but, you know, then you had Nintendo and stuff like that. But so with Gran Turismo, I played this game. Shout out to Sony. It was a great game. Got me into cars in my racing career that I'm in now. I love it. So one thing that you could do is you could buy a controller. I forgot who made the controller, but basically you could program in the codes. So I would program in a code and it would run overnight. I would run that sucker overnight. Next thing you know, I'd have like a million credits the next day. I could buy any car I wanted. I could mod it. So that was a replay attack, right? Think about it. I had a cheat code that I programmed into the controller and it could replay. So in kind of that same fashion, that's where the replay attacks spawned from, and that's what I kind of equated to. Um, instead of getting a million credits, these guys ran away with some money. So They got a million dollars. Well, I don't even know if it says how much. Uh, 120000 That's, that's, still, that's still better than still a lot, right? That's a good chunk of change. <laughs> that's real money. So let's get into it. So we've seen an odd new pattern of credit card fraud emanating from Brazil targeting U.S. financial institutions that could spell costly trouble for banks that are just beginning to issue customers more secure chip-based credit cards and debit cards. Remember how we were talking about chip and PIN before? Yeah. And PCI DSS 3.0, how that was rolling out, kind of instituting chip and PIN? Well, now we've seen that starting to get attacked now. So over the past week, at least three U.S. financial institutions reported receiving tens of thousands of dollars in fraudulent credit and debit card transactions coming from Brazil and hitting card accounts stolen in recent retail heists. Principally, you know, the cards compromised were a part of the breach at Home Depot. The most puzzling aspect of the unauthorized charges, they were all submitted through Visa and MasterCard's network as chip-enabled PIN transactions transactions even though the banks that issued the cards in questions haven't ever begun sending customers chip enabled cards so um the most frustrating part of the uh, unauthorized charges is that they're far harder for the bank to dispute because you have that other factor added on top of it now they can't dispute it because that was a second factor right that is kind of like me signing my name and putting my fingerprint now they can't dispute it so they say uh, banks usually end up eating the cost of the fraud from unauthorized transactions when that bit is flipped so um, you know they can use the counterfeit and stolen credit cards so if the fraud costs that occur from any fraudulent use of the customers chip enabled debit and uh, credit cards they can be uh, disguised as the pseudo chip transactions so you're probably asking yourself clone chip cards or clone transactions did we uh, clone what was happening across the wire or did we actually clone the physical piece that's in your wallet right so um, the bank that was first heard about from this fraud was a small financial institution in New England they battled some 120,000 in fraudulent charges from Brazilian stores in less than two days beginning last week the bank managed to block 80,000 of those fraudulent, fraudulent charges, but the bank's processor, which approves incoming transactions when the bank's core systems are offline, 
let another 40,000 through. Ow. So all of the transactions were debit charges and all came across MasterCard's network looking like, or looking to MasterCard like uh, chip transactions without a pin. The fraud expert with New England Bank said the institution had decided against reissuing the customer cards that were potentially compromised in the five-month breach at Home Depot, mainly because that would mean reissuing a sizable chunk of the bank's overall card base and because the bank had, until that point, seen virtual no, virtually no fraud on the accounts. So they made a decision. Their decision was the risk that was out there was that they're going to have a lot of fraudulent charges. What they said is, all right, we're not going to reissue new cards because we haven't seen anything tap the account. So the information that they were receiving didn't indicate that anybody was actively using those accounts from the heist. However, what occurred was, you know, if you're an attacker, what are you going to do with anything? So if I'm trying to enumerate a system, I'm not going to hit them full force. I'm not going to hit you with a $10,000 transaction off it's the gonna I'm going to be a couple bucks here, be low and slow. A couple bucks here, a couple bucks there. Go under the radar. Go with an online uh, service provider. You know, maybe buy some skis or something. Well, that would be expensive, but you get my drift. Something that is under the radar, that's widely accepted. And guess what? I'm just going to keep going with that. So um, let's see. So use the attack that they did in Office Space. Remember that attack? They oh, were, yeah. They were taking pennies because they were rounding up. Yep, right. So they were taking fractions of a fraction of a penny, but there were so many transactions that were occurring, it added up very quickly. So um, they've said that, uh, the bank said, we saw very low penetration rates on our Home Depot cards, so we didn't do a mass reissue. And then, in one day, we matched a month's worth of fraud on those cards to these charges from Brazil. The New England bank initially considered the possibility that the perpetrators had somehow figured out how to clone chip cards and had encoded the cards with their customer's card data. In theory, however, it should not be possible to easily clone a chip card. Chip cards are synonymous with a standard called EMV, which is short for European MasterCard and Visa, a global payment system that has already been adopted by every other G20 nation as a more secure alternative to cards that simply store account holder data on the card's mag stripe. EMV cards contain a secure microchip that is designed to make the card very difficult and expensive to counterfeit. Think of like a smart card, right, with the chip that's on there. In addition, there are several checks that the bank can use to validate the authenticity of a chip card of chip card transactions. The chip stores encrypted data about the cardholder account as well as a cryptogram which allows bank to tell uh, whether a card or transaction has been modified in any way. The chip also includes an internal counter mechanism that gets incremented with each sequential transaction so that a duplicate counter value that skips ahead or may um, have an incorrect number may indicate data copying or other fraud to the bank that issued the card. So there you go. They're trying to uh, protect the integrity. And this is exactly what bank fraud fighters, uh, what had them um, scratching their heads. Why would the perpetrators go through all this trouble of taking a plain old Mac stripe uh, cards that were stolen in the Home Depot um, breach and making those look like EMB transactions. Why wouldn't the scammers do what fraudsters normally do with this data, which is simply create other counterfeit cards and use the phony cards to buy gift cards or other high-priced merchandise from big box retailers? So more importantly, how are the supposed EMB transactions on non-EMB cards being put through the Visa and MasterCard network as EMB transactions in the first place? The New England Bank said that 
MasterCard initially insisted that the charges were made using the physical chip-based cards, but the bank protested that it hadn't yet issued its customers any of the chip cards. Furthermore, the bank's processor hadn't even been certified by MasterCard to handle the chip card transaction. So why was MasterCard so sure that the phony transactions were chip-based? Let's roll into the EMB replay attacks. Wait a minute, Matt. Let me get get, get something straight. So it sounds like privacy roulette is being played here with our... Or you could say privacy poker. Privacy poker. So it almost sounds like the uh, banks understand that these costs are going to be passed back to the, the consumer. consumer. Yeah. It's so a, it's a they risk, don't really... It's definitely a risk-based risk model. So the risk and the cost are synonymous. So, well, not synonymous, but the more risk that they take on, the more reward that they can get from that. So, for example, if I'm a bank and I have cards that have been compromised, if I don't tell people that the cards have been compromised and don't issue new cards, that then increases my bottom line, right? So it pays me to ignore. However, where is the sense of ownership? Where is the regulation that says, if you know about something and you don't say something, there's an internal code of ethics that has to be kicked into play. Where's the legislation? Yeah, that that uh, that bothers me. And I would like to add, since you know we've been doing these podcasts, I've come to the realization that security breaches happen are very common. And and just recently, within since we've been doing the podcast, I've had my cards breached two times now. And I've really started thinking maybe I should just carry cash. At least I'll have better control of my money, too. Obviously, when you swipe a card, you're not uh, thinking about what's left in the bank. <laughs> Absolutely. So, I mean, that's one thing that's, that's on the forefront. Another thing is um, Apple Pay. So Apple Pay has come out now, and that's a near-field communication um, paying method where you load the card, but nowhere in the transaction does it transmit your payment details. Well, it has payment details, but none of the credit card data is transferred in the transaction. So when you put your phone onto the near-field communication device to pay with Apple Pay, mm -hmm. it, everything is handled. So it's more of a secure method. It's seamless and it's quick, too. However, there's another... Um, and again, we're vendor agnostic here. So I'm going to give you the good and the bad. You know, you can't have the good without the bad. So the bad is currency. So currency is another um, technology that's come out that uses QR codes on the uh, to be displayed on the phone. So what happens is you say you want to pay something, you display the QR code that corresponds with the um, credit card, you scan that, then the retailer has verification that it's being paid, right? That's a little bit more messy. Um, what is exactly being transferred in that you know currency transaction detail? I don't know. I haven't looked at it. I can't comment on it. But that just shows you there's two disparate uh, technologies that are out there. How secure is one versus the other? It's really upon what the vendor wants to do. Apple versus currency, which I believe is ultimately Walmart-backed, if I'm not mistaken. I have to do more research on that. Yeah, we have to check that out. But um, what I can say is this. In CVS... Um, I believe that they wanted, so when Apple Pay first came out, you could go in and pay with your Apple Pay device. So I could pay with an iPhone 6 or 6 Plus. Now they've stopped that, and they said you can only use currency. So my thing is, if I'm a consumer and I want to pay for something, I should have a choice, right? Now there's not necessarily a, a choice in And play. some companies that started out with Apple Pay have backed off as well. I saw a report on that yesterday, I think. 
Yep. So it's a current, what is it, currency payment. Let me look it up. So what do you have to say on this? Uh, oh, it's called the Merchant Customer Exchange, which uh, has a coalition of um, retailers. Oh, wow. Hold on. We just got some information. Retailer-backed Apple Pay rival currency has been hacked. Tester's email address is stolen. So the, and again, this is from TechCrunch. This was just released six hours ago. We're recording on Wednesday. So um, the Merchant Customer Exchange, the coalition of retailers, including Walmart, Best Buy, and Gap, and others who are backing a mobile, mobile payment solution currency meant to rival newcomer Apple Pay has been hacked. The data breach involves the theft of email addresses, but the currency mobile application was not affected. The company confirms to TechCrunch. Within the last 36 hours, MCX says it learned that unauthorized third parties obtained the email addresses of some of its currency pilot program participants and other individuals who had expressed interest in the app. The group now has notified its merchant partners about the incident and is communicating directly with those individuals whose email addresses were involved. That's what a company spokesperson from Currency told TechCrunch. At this time, it appears that only emails of these early mobile app testers have been stolen, which is not as significant a data breach as having payment data or other personal information taken, like home addresses or phone numbers, that, which has been the case with other large-scale data breaches, like the one which took place over the last holiday season at Target. In addition, many of these email addresses were dummy accounts used for te testing purposes, which means that they may not uh, affect many end users at this point, as the solution still ha is in its pilot phase. However, MCX says it's continuing to investigate the solution or the situation, come up with a solution, and will provide more updates as they arrive. So we'll share the email that they put out. My thing is, you can buy insurance, right? So if I'm a retailer, if I'm MCX, right, if I'm currency, and there's, I, again, I have to do my research. I think, you know, Walmart is a white adopter, but I think they're a huge investor in this right which is great i want you know i want people especially somebody who is as heavily involved in handling payment card information as walmart target home depot right even though the breaches has happened or have happened in the past you can then rebound from that right i understand there's a lesson learned to be there you know to be said there however what you cannot ensure is brand so mcx which came out which is currency right that's that new payment that was rivaling Apple Pay, which we just talked about. And the early phases just got hacked. What does that tell you about the data security? What are the data security practices of that company if they've already been breached? And even though it's, you know, email addresses and things like that, that's too close to home. Hey, who, make, who knows it makes Apple Pay look really good, doesn't it? To be honest with you, I, I wholeheartedly agree. But then again, I'm trying to remain as vendor agnostic as possible. And I'll post more information on, you know, this debacle, right, with what's going on. Again, this is something I read in passing with the whole investor, what's happening on the back end, blah, blah, blah. But we'll correlate that. But that does kind of um, pose another question from a, a credit card standpoint. Matt, I had a question for you. Didn't, weren't you recently affected by uh, one of these uh, credit card breaches? Yeah, so like you, I was also affected, and it hit close to home for me. So, so break it down. I'll break it down for you. So this is what occurred. And I'm going to minimize the name of the perp well, not the perpetrators. I really don't care about <laughs> what the perpetrators, happened was. <laughs> but what what happened, right? So, um, I have a banking institution. I have a debit card with that banking institution. Arguably, 
debit card shouldn't be used, but we all know in certain situations you have to use a debit card, right? So um, the target breach happened. I actually used it during, the, I used a credit card during the car target breach. That got you know taken care of. They sent me a new credit card. Everything was good. Um, I then said, all right, I need to revert to cash. We all know you do that for a week and a half, two weeks. You're like, bump this. I need to go back to plastic because the convenience. Convenience trumps security in almost every sense of the term, right? So what happened was the debit card, um, you know, I noticed in my account that there was a fraudulent charge. There was something that I couldn't account for, right? Um, it happened to be for like 450 bucks. It was for a travel agency that was not based in the U.S., I said, all right, this is definitely a red flag. So the banking company, I think we, or the banking institution, I think we talked about this in a previous episode. The event correlation that they're employing now with heuristics is they're, they're heavily involved in data analytics. So basically, um, if you have a Bank of America, Citigroup, Tower, whatever the case is, right? Uh, you know, Pentagon, Federal, whatever the case is, you have, and I'm using local places around here because we're based in Baltimore, and you have a company that sits below that that does the event correlation. They're the ones that make sure if we see a charge in Virginia and another charge in El Salvador, well, that can't happen, right? So they shut down the card. So that's that's the security portion there. They do event correlation on a mass scale. Unless you're buying from Amazon. Unless you're buying, yeah, unless you're buying from Amazon. And then they'll also call you and ask you, hey, was this you? Absolutely. They'll do, they'll take a next step, right? And so the bank says, we want to pay somebody to do that because that doesn't scale well for us as the bank. We can't, it's not feasible. We have a lot of people signing up every day for new accounts, a lot of people with transactions. I can't have people look at computers for event correlation. It just doesn't make sense. So they offload that, right? So noticed $450 charge, travel agency. I said, this is not good. They shut down the account. I got a phone call or they shut down the card. I got a phone call. I said, yeah, that is not me. They said, all right, what we need you to do because it's over a certain amount is come in um, to the bank and say it is a fraudulent charge and we'll start the process. So I did that, right? So now what we're noticing is the attackers or the bad guys are changing their methods and this is what happened. So I disputed that that was back in May. Well, I just got a letter in the mail saying that the company that was the travel agency has said, we want to dispute that. They, they said- Dispute we, your dispute? They dispute my dispute. <laughs> they, they provided a rebuttal. They said, that was you, right? So another thing that was crazy was they had to include exhibits in a body of evidence, right? Oh, okay. Dude. I, to be honest with you, I'm, I do security practice and stuff like that. You know, I practice information security, but I should have practiced law. I'm pretty good at this stuff. So I was like, all right, where's your body of evidence? They, I subpoenaed them. They gave it to me. So I looked at it. What was included in this information were things like IP where the transaction started. Where was the IP? The IP was an El Salvadorian IP. I was like, that's not me, number one. Number two, they also included the amount. They said... This was you, and they included, they required um, an address for billing. Well, the address for billing didn't include my state. So it had the street address, they had, you know, the city, comma, zip code. So it, it was totally out of font too, right? So I knew something was fishy, right? So what happens now, what I have to do is take away from my life, write 
a rebuttal to their rebuttal and say, no, it truly wasn't me. So the attackers, what they did, they got smart. Previously, what they were doing is they would buy a ticket in someone else's name, a plane ticket through the travel agency. And they'd say, yeah, I'm so-and-so. Well, the banks caught on to that and said, if it's not the person whose card it is and the name on the ticket doesn't match the billing address, right, then that's not good. The attackers caught on to that. Now what they do is they buy flyer miles. So this, this attacker bought 32,000 flyer miles, right? They could buy 32,000, 24,000, whatever the case is. They put that in an account. Now that's in you know, an account that they can touch. They rack up those miles and then they buy tickets from there, which it doesn't matter at that stage because they're miles in an account. It's not a ticket for travel. It's you're buying, a, you know, you're using your miles to go somewhere. So they're able to separate that. There's a level of separation there. And I thought that was kind of ingenious. So the attacker said, all right, you're going to put something in front of me. I'm going to go around that. And they figured out the process. That just shows you that processes that are out there, attackers can enumerate that process. And every time they'll like, figure out a way that it's like that fighting process. cancer. Yeah. <laughs> and as you know, if you're a network defender, right, it's a lot, it's a lot harder on the DCO side than it is on the OCO side right all the time i don't care which engagement you're in if you're offensive it's very easy you just have to get it right one time if you're defensive if you're the banking institution it's very hard because you have to guard against it ten thousand times right just takes that one time to get through i think i called it the cyber security scorecard or cyber defense scorecard they don't have to get it right one time so continuing on well matt i want to let you in on a little secret Uh uh-oh I was booking my trip to the Bahamas, so I figured... Booking.com? Booking. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, Shout out to Booking.com. And I definitely learned don't steal from your friends, so sorry, Matt, for uh, those fraudulent <laughs> charges. Did you use Booking.com? <laughs> no. Yeah, you did. <laughs> so, well, we figured out who the fraudster was. <laughs> so, Vic's been taking a lot of trips lately. You know, we went out to Orlando and stuff. Now I, knows who, now I know whose uh, miles he's using, so... <laughs> You're welcome. You owe me a steak dinner. So, all right. Um, to continue on the EMB, um, or the replay attacks. So MasterCard did not respond to the multiple requests for comments on that story. Visa also declined to comment on the record. This is for the EMB replay. But the New England bank told Krebs on security that in a conversation with MasterCard officials, the credit card company said the most likely explanation was the fraudsters were pushing regular MagStripe transactions through the card network as in EMB purchases using a technique known as replay, right? They find out what the EMB bit is to flip, and then they just replay that on multiple accounts. So a fraud analyst with Gardner Inc. said, banks in Canada saw the same EMB spoofing attacks emanating from Brazil several months ago. One of the banks there suffered a fairly large loss, and because the bank wasn't checking cryptograms or counters on the EMB transactions. Hello? We have a security control out there. Why are you why are you not using it? So that just shows you it's circumventing security for convenience. They didn't want to process the cryptograms or the counters, which are security controls that are implemented into that algorithm for using the chip chip and pin. And why do you think they didn't want to do that? Um, I could think of two things off the top of my head. Number one is you need we need bigger stuff, right? So you need computers to process those transactions. Number one. Number two, you need individuals that are the merchants to employ the use of those devices if it's not widely adopted for the swipes that can handle the swipe card readers that can handle the chip and pin it's not going to happen 
So um, the Canadian bank in this case would take any old cryptogram and they weren't checking that one-time code because they didn't have it implemented correctly. If they saw an EMV transaction and didn't see the code, they would just authorize the transaction. Gardner also said the fraudsters likely knew that the Canadian bank wasn't checking the cryptogram and wasn't looking at the dynamic counter code. Um, it appears the attacks, the crooks, the crooks are not breaking the EMV protocol, but taking advantage of bad implementations. And to sum this up, there's uh, going to be a lot of confusion when banks roll out EMV. And one thing that Gardner has learned uh, from clients is how hard it is to implement properly. A lot of banks will loose will loosen the um, other fraud controls right away, even before they verify that they've got EMV implemented correctly. They won't expect the point of sale codes to be manipulated by fraudsters. That's the irony. We think EMB is going to sol solve all the card fraud problems, but doing it correctly is going to take a lot longer than they thought. It's not that easy. Same thing with a firewall implementation. So if I'm a customer and I say I need an ASA on the network or I need a Sidewinder firewall, whatever the case is, right? I put that firewall device out there. What am I going to do initially? You're going to set up your rules. Allow any, any, <laughs> right? Who's going to take the time to sit there and look at the granular traffic that's occurring on the network, actually put the time in to look at packets going across the network, which ports and protocols are used the most, and lock it down? A security engineer. A security engineer. So shout out. If you need any security engineering services, please hit up Matt at InfoSecSync, Vic at InfoSecSync, and Nick at InfoSecSync.com. We got your back. But in all seriousness, you know, the implementations of these things have to be there. Um, a solid implementation. So that almost shows you who's writing the book on this. Who's saying, we have EMV, you know, I have, let's liken it to this. I like, you know, making correlations. You have a race car, right? Your race car has a thousand horsepower. If you have stock tires on that puppy, you ain't getting the power to the ground, right? There has to be a combination in play that is efficient and effective. So we have to strike that balance. But somebody has to be in the middle of this, whether it's PCI DSS, Sarbanes-Oxley, whoever needs to sit in the middle of it and say, look, this is what needs to happen, and this is how we need to go about doing it in an implementation. This is what the standard is. Don't deviate from the standard. These are the guidelines and principles that are set forward for this implementation. Don't deviate from it because it works. That was the golden rule by Matt. Yes. So what's next? So uh, the National Institute of Standards and Technology is warning of a of the presence of a zero-day flaw in the Samsung Find My Mobile service. Uh-oh. Who has a Samsung? No, you have a Motorola. I have a Motorola. But you have a, you have a Droid. Motorola. Okay. So, all right, then you may want to hear this. I was thinking of getting the Samsung. There's a new Samsung. Is that the... Galaxy S18? I think it's an S5 now. I think it's the S5. S5, and then a Note 4 just came out. The Note 4 Note came 4, out. And, and then the iPhone 6S, which... And I, I like Matt's iPhone, mm -hmm. but I don't know. I'm still... I, I'm just not sold on... All right, well, maybe this will influence your decision. So, U.S. Cert NIST is warning of the presence of a zero-day flaw that affects Samsung Find My Mobile web service, which is CVE 2014 -8346. So the Samsung Find My Mobile implements several features that allow users to locate a, uh, the lost device, play an alert on the remote device, or to lock it remotely um, from the web browser. The remote control feature on Samsung Mobile's devices does not validate the source of the lock code data received over a network, 
which makes it easier for a remote attacker to cause a denial of service screen locking with arbitrary code by triggering unaccepted or unexpected find my mobile network traffic. So this is a security advisory uh, issued by NIST. So according to NIST, the remote control feature implemented by the Samsung Find My Mobile obviously uh, does not validate that, uh, that code coming through. So essentially, here's what will happen. So it's being malicious. Yeah. So you have a Samsung device on a network, right? I'm on that same network. I'm able to spoof the Find My Mobile um, web service traffic going to that device. I can then lock it with a different lock code. That's awesome. On the back end. Why doesn't my device work? Yes. So now what do you have to do? You have to remotely wipe, or not remotely wipe, but you have to wipe the device and start over new. And then you do it again tomorrow. (laughs) Then you do it again tomorrow. So um, the NIST rated the severity of the flaw in the Samsung Find My Mobile as high, but the exploitability subscore is 10. So that is an index likelihood of the exploitation. Um, There are a couple uh, videos of the proof of concepts. We'll post that up. I took a look at them. It's very feasible. It's something that can definitely happen. Man, all these phones keep getting hacked. I'm going to go with the uh, old school uh, StarTac? Mo- Motorola StarTac. That'd be uh, a good look for That was you, my man. favorite. That would be a good look. It's uh, light and it has a good battery profile. on the back with the hump. <laughs> I think How? Nick has one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, along with a satchel phone. Yeah, he's, he's, yeah, he's one of the got those. Sat- he, Nick's the only guy I know that plugs his phone in and the limbs. The, the limbs. <laughs> the limbs. The limbs. <laughs> <laughs> lines are fucking up. Hey, I'm Actually, secure, man. last week his battery died, so he had uh, he had the solo cups with the strings, right? <laughs> and he was like talking to it. And poor guy, he plugged it into his Prius, and when he plugged it in, the the Prius stopped running. <laughs> it sucked all the juice out of the battery. <laughs> that's too. Funny. And that's just to make one phone call. <laughs> that's funny. So so this this will definitely. Uh, kind of challenge your choice, right? So what you want to choose. I understand, you know, the StarTech, but that's actually a good choice. But there again, I can go further down in the layers, right? And hit you at the GSM level, right? Bam. I can do a man in the middle on GSM. So either way, you know, hey, I won't be able to hit your device. You don't, you're not able to store anything but contacts and text messages on a StarTech. So at least you're protected there. So the iCloud hack, the Samsung Find My Mobile hack, that stuff won't be able to be perpetrated. But if you want to do something, you can still do something. So that's something to keep in mind. So another thing we want to get into is the uh, security firm Adaptive Mobile has discovered a new variant of Kohler ransomware that is capable of self-replication via SMS messages. It's crazy. So now I can replicate ransomware via SMS. So just send me a text. And yeah, it's so on. a new strain of the Kohler Android ransomware is threatening the mobile industry. The new variant spreads itself via SMS, and it holds the victim's device phone hostage until the ransom is paid. The, Col- the Kohler ransomware was detected by experts at Kaspersky Lab in July. The researchers issued a report on the malware explaining that it was targeted and targeting both Android devices and desktop browsers. The first variant of Kohler Android ransomware was observed in May when the Trojan was spread through certain, um, you know, bad websites under the guise of legitimate applications. Implementing a classic extortion scheme, they lock the victim's device display and then request money from the victims. The malware displays fake notifications from law enforcement agencies accusing the victims of viewing and storing child bad things. Right. Right. Um, 
so the security experts from mobile security firm Adaptive Mobile have discovered the new variant of the uh, mobile worm, worm.kohler, allows the malicious code to spread via SMS, which sends shortened bit.ly URLs. So bit.ly, which is a popular shortening service, it populates by that. So what's crazy is they were also using... So it looks like the bit.ly goes to Dropbox. Dropbox is HTTPS enabled, so you think it's secure. Then you click the APK, which is you know an application, and then that loads, and then the ransomware is there on the phone. Isn't that crazy? So the security firm has already observed thousands of messages from hundreds of infected phones, mainly located in the U.S. So looking at this, U.S. is 75%. Um, so they looked at distribution of clicks. U.S. is 75%, Iran is 8%, Saudi Arabia, then it's uh, United Arab Emirates, and China is 1%. Then it goes down from there. The attack scenario is very interesting. It sends an SMS uh, message with a bit.ly link stating that the account with the user's photos has been created. To spread itself, the color worm first sends the SMS to all the contacts in the mobile address books with a text uh, stating someone made a profile named, and then it has the contact's name, and he uploaded some of your photos. Is that you? Followed by a bit.ly link. Now, I notice in this you know, dialogue that they send that it has the contact name as a changing variable. However, it doesn't have he or she as another piece. So looking at this from a proofreading, from you know, a grammatical standpoint, if he is constant, right, and you have a female name in there, Obviously, you know that that may be either a typo or, you know, things can happen in, in uh, SMS messages. But either way, the victim is then redirected to a Dropbox folder that contains a photo viewer app, which is trojanized with the malware. Once installed, the malicious app locks the victim's devices and it requests payment of the fee to unlock it. Once installed, the malware blocks the user screen with a fake FBI page, which says the device has been locked due to, it says, pornographic or other inappropriate content. The user can waive the accusations by paying a fine using a money pack voucher. And it's a new approach for Kohler, which used to hide on pornography sites and now is using SMS and the wording of a well-known Facebook scam to entice users to install it. Now, that's all stated in a post. Um, also, it says, the device appears to be completely locked down with the screen on the phone blocked so the user won't be able to close the window or deactivate the malware through the app manager. Um, and this is from a blog post that was on Adaptive Mobile. They also said on this blog post, the victim is forced to buy a voucher as instructed on the blocking page and send the voucher code to a malware author. Wait, how are they going to buy the voucher? So if I'm the victim, I buy the money pack voucher. It then gives me a verification code. I can then send the verification code and then the, um, the code itself to the malware author. And then, you know, they can either send something back to unlock it, right? So the way that it propagates, well, not propagates, but the way it works is once they give you the key, you can then put in the key and it will decrypt because um, it's ransomware. So it encrypts the file system and then says put in this code to decrypt um, the file system. So it's employing use of like AES or, or something of the sort for the encryption scheme and then says, all right, you need to get a code, so you need to pay me. So it tells the victim what site they want the victim to go to to make the payment. Yep. So we have some mitigations for this or some workarounds. Cool. What is it? So the experts notice the code of Wormcaller is internationalized, and it's able to display localized messages to victims. So they usually strongly suggest 
the infected users do not pay any ransom because there is no guarantee that the mobile is going to be free from the threat. Another risky behavior for the mobile users is to enable the unknown sources options in the Android device security settings menu. Enabling the option, users can download applications from unknown sources away from the Google Play Store, right? Which is a behavior that could allow that malicious code to download from unofficial stores to infect the device. Color does not encrypt users' files, so this reason it is easy for users to eliminate it from infected devices. Below is the instructions to remove the malware. First, you want to re reboot the mobile device into safe mode and then remove the malicious photo viewer app using the standard, uh, standard Android app uninstallation tool. And remember, the name of this file is going to be is going to be that image name.apk that you saw in the Dropbox, right? So it's going to propagate itself as a photo viewer. It's going to have a picture, you know, it looks like, uh, you know, one of the image viewer representations of a photo icon, right? And it's going to have JPEG. That's what you're going to want to remove. So this is pretty crazy. I mean, we've been, um, attackers now are transitioning and adopting methods that will not only, you know, uh, make the distribution of the malware more efficient and effective, but the effectiveness is increased because they're playing on users. You know, they're enticing users to click things. They're using things like Dropbox, which is HTTPS enabled. So you think when you see something green in the browser, right? Because when you go to HTTPS, it's green. It's secure. It's good. Yeah, it's good. It's secure, right? Um, and, you know, you have to look beyond that layer. You have to say, all right, is this truly something that I initiated? And if so, all right, let me click it. Something that has image.apk, let's use common sense. An APK file is not going to be named that. It's going to be image.jpg if you're looking at an image, right? And it already has a native photo viewer app, so why would you download another one? It's just basic, employing basic, um, you know, security Security knowledge. awareness. Security awareness. So be sure to be on the lookout for that and, and employ those methods if you do get infected with this app. Also, another thing I would encourage is for you to do frequent backups of your phone. Not only for the contacts, but hook it up to the computer. Do backups monthly, so that way you can just roll back a month. Now it's not starting from from scratch. Oh man, I do I do at least once a week. Me too, but that's because we <laughs> that's have iPhones, <laughs> so it automatically does it through iTunes. You know, I think uh, the Android camp is a little bit different. But either way, something to keep in mind. So, kind of segueing from that, Shell Shock, it's coming back. What do you think about that, Nick? <laughs> I'm shocked. You're shocked? All right. I'm shell-shocked. So um, the experts at SANS Internet Storm Center, ISC, experts discovered a new shell-shock botnet campaign that is targeting SMTP uh, gateways worldwide. So that's simple mail traffic protocol, right? Or transport protocol, excuse me. So a new wave of attacks exploiting the shell-shock flaw is targeting SMTP servers worldwide, according to a post published by ISC. Sands explained that the payload is an IS or IRC Perl bot with simple DDoS commands that could be used to fetch and execute additional malicious code. The new Shellshock campaign is targeting SMTP gateways, searching for vulnerable MTAs, MDAs, and the attackers use to hide the malicious code into the message headers. Oh, right. So the attackers bad. are including the following code in several message fields, including the to field, from field, subject field, date, message ID, and others. So they're going to have a wget that goes out to a malicious IP, um, and it's legend.txt, and then they issue a kill9 Perl, and then Perl slash temp dot legend. So they're downloading the text, they're killing Perl jobs, and then they're rerunning Perl to run on that dot legend that was just downloaded from the malicious site. Ooh, that's money. So the Shellshock vulnerabilities continue to create problems more than a month after it was publicly disclosed. 
Threat actors are exploiting the bash bug vulnerability to serve a malicious Perl script into, onto the targeted machine. So that's the attack vector. What they do after that, right, with affecting the SMTP headers and things like that, that's something secondary. So the script is used by attackers to recruit the computers into a botnet that re receives and is controlled over IRC. Um, so that was what Binary Defense said in their website. They also said the attack leverages Shellshock as a main attack vector through the subject body to and from fields. And once compromised, the Perl botnet is activated and beacons to the IRC for further instruction for a stage attack. So in the following, we'll post the image, what it looks like. Um, BDS also said it's unknown which product would specifically be vulnerable to this since Shellshock relies on system level calls and is leveraging bash. However, it seems to be fairly uh, wide-scale delivery of emails across the United States. Security experts have detected numerous attacks worldwide that are exploiting Shellshock, including attacks against VoIP systems and campaigns to spread the malware like uh, the Mayhem botnet. A honeypot run by experts at Alien Vault Labs has detected two separate strains of malware attempting to exploit Shellshock in just 24 hours of the Shellshock disclosure. In September, uh, security experts at and researchers at FireEye published details on several uh, POCs, proof of concepts, which exploit Shellshock. As explained many times, many hidden functions on Linux Unix-based systems could be affected because they invoke the flawed bash. And it's quite common to patch the overall amount of vulnerable machines in a short time, and cyber criminals know this. This situation is particularly critical for Internet of Things devices, which uh, in many cases, they aren't available to upgrade or it's just simply impossible to apply any update. If I'm running a mail service, right? If I have a mail server in an organization, I don't want to take that down, right? If I'm a small business, right? Fortune 10,000 company, right? Um, very low operating costs. I'm not going to sit there and say, okay, let me take my mail server offline. I'm not thinking about distributing the load on two mail servers, patching one, keeping one in production. And then it, that's just, those are concepts that I'm worried about running my business, creating widgets. I don't really care about the mail server that's in the closet. Um, and that's just one thing. Now your mail server can be serving out uh, botnets, right? Or um, this code for a botnet. And then you're now having multiple botnets within your enterprise environment. That also raises another question that I wanted to ask. Who is handling this? So once the botnet occurs and the ISP notices botnet type activity. So your mail server has served out to your laptop. Your laptop is now part of a botnet. I issue you know, a target from an IRC channel. I say hit this IP, right? Now you're implicated in that crime. Yeah, you sure are. It's just like if if somebody robs a bank with your car with your license plate on it, who are they going to go knocking on? Whose door are they going to go knocking on? Who the car's registered to. Exactly. Same thing with a computer. So how are we going to redo this legislation um, that kind of governs? I don't even know what legislation is out there for DDoS, right? Disclosure and you know, looking at who it's attributed to and things like that. But who's the onus, right? Who's taking the onus? Obviously, ISC is out there, and they're trying to raise a level of awareness through SANS. But system owners, business process owners really need to say, all right, what in my enterprise environment is forward-facing? Let me have a tiered approach to this patching. Let me have, this is what's number one, what needs to be patched now. This is what can be patched secondary. And this is what part of my business process is core and is immediate. Um, so when these disclosures come out, it's not a rush, right? It's something that can be planned. So with that, we're kind of, uh, I'm kind of done with the story section, unless you have anything else to add, Nick. 
No, I think we're going to uh, go take a break and come back and finish out the show. Finish the show. All right, guys, it's been a very busy week. It's been a very good show, too. We wanted to get back online and, and kind of talk to you guys. And we haven't forgot about our fans. So please hit us up. Um, feedback at infosexsync.com. Hit us on social media. We're at infosexsync on Twitter. Uh, Facebook.com slash infosexsync.sm. Uh, we're also on, on uh, YouTube. So we're going to post some video footage from uh, B-Sides DC as well as Issa International. Uh, we'd also like to shout out a couple of folks that we've seen at some past shows. Shout them out. Uh, Ned, at all points, thank you so much. Uh, this is a great yeah, thanks, space Ned. that we're in today. Uh, really cool stuff. Ron Gula, we want to shout you hey, out Ron. from Tenable. Uh, it was great seeing you today great out at the Cloud you. Talk. Uh, glad that you know you guys are Tenable is really interested in the cloud security piece. Um, Passive Vulnerability Scanner uh, Security Center and, and Nessus. Check them out. Want to shout out Mike Binko from CloudTrack, Guy Daly from Cisco, Art Jacoby um, from MCIP, hey, and, Art. Uh, BMC by Maryland, Cyber, and uh, also Frank Jones. Hey, from, Frank Jones. Yep, from Whiteford, Taylor, and Preston. You know, it, it, it's been really good going to these events, but it's always good to, I feel like we're at home when we're recording this podcast. So it's always good to come back to the InfoSec Sync family. We have some stuff uh, happening um, here on the horizon uh, in lieu of training. Yeah, keep looking out for it. So uh, let's just say it rhymes with CISSP, right? <laughs> Maybe. You can make it rhyme with that, right? So either way, be on the lookout. We'll have something happening here. It'll be great training opportunity for people in the local area. Um, we'll drop that next time. We'll keep you guys waiting. And uh, do you have anything, guys? Do you have anything, Vic? I don't know about you guys, but I'm hungry. You guys want to get something to eat after? Let's wrap do this it, thing man. Up? Let's it's popcorn it. and water. Ain't, uh, ain't cutting it, man. So we'll, we're going to go out and uh, get something to eat. But we will see you guys next time. So be sure to stay uh, in sync with InfoSec Sync. And we will see you guys Peace out.